the UK SSD podcast, bringing the Sustainable Development Goals to life. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod, produced in partnership with UK SSD, a cross-sector network designed to support the delivery of the Sustainable Development Goals in the UK. I'm delighted to be co-hosting this series with Emily Auckland, who's the Network Director, and this is our second programme. Emily, hello and welcome back to the virtual PlanetPod studio. Hi Amanda, it's great to be back. So in these programmes, we're talking about how the Sustainable Development Goals can be used to create socially just and green recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. So the great thing about the goals is that because they're an interlinked agenda, They provide us with a framework that can not only help us tackle the really big challenges we face in the world, like climate change, but also long-standing issues such as poverty and social exclusion. So really relevant topics when it comes to our recovery from the pandemic. Now, the important thing at the moment about the SDGs for us to remember is that they exist. They're already there. And when we're thinking about the future and our recovery from the pandemic, we don't need to be starting uh, new conversations, building new frameworks, building new agendas. We can just use this one that already exists, that has the widespread support of local government, business and civil society in the UK and around the world. And that's really, really important, isn't it, when we start to think about building back and the campaign to build back better and to make sure that when we come out of the um, the pandemic that our communities are as resilient and well-resourced as possible when we use the resources that we already have and the partnerships we've developed. And I think one of the things that struck lots of people um, during the, the lockdown is how much communities have come together. And there's been numerous incidents of mutual support groups and people donating to good causes, but also communities actually connecting with one another which perhaps they hadn't or they'd lost the ability to do as part of the very busy lives that we were all leading um, and I feel that this is a fantastic opportunity to talk about this and who better to talk about um, what's happening on our communities than our guest today Catherine Anderson who's CEO of the Joe Cox Foundation. Hello Catherine welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me in the pod. <laughs> Before joining um, Joe Cox, you were Chief of Staff to Rory Stewart and you founded NGOs in India and Myanmar. And you're also founding director of 5050 Parliament and an active campaigner at Women to Win. And I think you were also on the um, approved candidates list at the last election. I know you're committed to gender equality and empowering all girls to achieve their potential. And I'm delighted to say that you were one of the evening standards, hashtag Progress 1000, most influential political change makers last year. Catherine, you've got a really impressive track record, but at the moment, obviously, your focus has been around what's happening in communities. And you've been looking at how the impact of uh, the pandemic is impacting on the communities that you work with. Um, The team at Joe Cox are really committed to building a fairer, kinder and more tolerant world. So can you tell us, What has been your experience of the pandemic in terms of the communities you've been working with? Thank you so much, Amanda. Um, And you're right, you know, like like everyone else, we've all had to pivot very fast to react to and respond to a global pandemic in the last three months. And that's been pretty challenging, very interesting. And it has, as you say, really highlighted how much of an upswing in community action we've seen and also how many people have been exposed to um, what it means to be a good neighbour when perhaps if it weren't for COVID-19, they may never have encountered those kinds of um, opportunities to to, um, do good stuff in their communities. So so what we've seen is, and you will know this this, um, narrative well, you know, we've seen groups forming organically, we've seen 
you know, mutual aid groups and we've seen local befriending networks. We've seen organisations of all kinds turning from delivering um, work and community initiatives on a place basis. So in community centres and shared spaces to delivering online. So digitising and and finding new ways to, to interact and connect. And I think what we're seeing is that, you know, people feel afraid, people feel alone. Sometimes all we want is for this to all end. But at times we're doing okay. And in those moments, you know, we're we're doing things that are a little bit bigger than just us, joining those local mutual aid groups, protecting the most vulnerable. And sometimes we've come together all as one, you know, like standing together to clap for our carers or, um, you know, showing our our solidarity um, intergenerationally on VE Day or whatever it's been. Um, I think we have been exposed as a country, as a, as a world, that, that you know, we, we are greater than the sum of our parts when we face this challenge together. So what we're seeing is that every little act of connection helps. Um, and I think that really speaks to, I can think of four of the sustainable development goals that that really speaks to directly. <laughs> we're going to give you a test. Can yeah. you name them? <laughs> ah. um, yes. No. Um, <laughs> do you really want yeah, go ahead, yeah. because I think it's really important. And I know, Emily, you would say this, is that for those of us who, who are working in and around this field, you know, whether it's sustainability or community action, we know the SDGs and they're part of our language. But I think for a lot of communities, they haven't really permeated right down. And if you were to stop someone in the street and say, what are the SDGs? They might well say, I have no idea. And unless they're our producer, Jim, they probably couldn't name all 17 of them. Or Emily, obviously, who could probably name all 179 <laughs> targets. Can you? 169 so, targets. Thank you, Pon. 169 targets. I've added a few. Um, so, yeah, which ones do they speak to particularly in terms of the work that you're doing, Catherine? So, obviously, good health and well-being, which I think is number three or four. I can't remember off the top of my head. Number three. Um, that That's a clear one. But when we think about good health, you know, we, we're not just talking about um, our physical health. We're talking about, obviously, our mental health, but also our collective social and emotional well-being as a country, as a community. And as a world. So so that's that's obviously a key one. Sustainable cities and communities. Um, again, you know, we 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 can only be a cohesive, uh, forward thinking, collaborative um, society when we think about our communities, futures and the kinds of infrastructure, social, physical, whatever it might be, that the kinds of infrastructures we need to build. And for me and the Joe Cox Foundation, that's about community infrastructure we're all about collaboration so you know we're seeing a lot of the response to covid is um sectors reaching out to one another who wouldn't normally work together i mean business charity interfaith groups but also um businesses and and corporates and we're seeing also sectors working together where they would normally be in competition i mean particularly the tech sector and the digital sector where we're seeing um, organizations being platform agnostic about the content that they're producing and you know the kinds of content that they want to reach bigger audiences so never have, have I seen um, brought into sharp relief more so than now this idea that we are you know as I say greater than the sum of our parts and, and there has never been a time where it's been more important to collaborate so for me sustainability is not only about our climate but also about you know, yeah, the way we work together. Um, an interesting goal, which you might not directly link, is around peace and, and justice and strong institutions. I mean, one of the, the worries I have about, about COVID is that while our communities are feeling more connected, 
um, we are seeing evidence that as a country, we may become more polarized because we're seeing a rise in identity-based violence as a result of coronavirus very early on. You know, there was a, a Singaporean student who was attacked in London before we went into lockdown even. So we were seeing that there were, there were racial tensions around the, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, which uh, I know organizations and, and government fully expect to see play out. So having um, a, a connected approach to identity-based violence, and that's you know a key theme of, of peace and, and, and justice is, is really important as well and something I'd like to see people um, look more closely at. Can I just ask you something on that point? Because I think the other side of goal 16 is, is not just it's not just peace and justice, it's also about participation. And I do think that there is perhaps a tendency in not just nationally but locally in the UK to uh, engage with communities from a decision-making point. So government engaging with communities very much from a sort of consultative point of view rather than a participatory point of view. And we've we've certainly seen with the rise of citizens' assemblies a recognition of uh, the role that more participatory practices can play in uh, decision-making at local and national level. How, how do you think, you know, are you seeing anything around that uh, during the pandemic or do you think there's something we can learn from that that we should build into our recovery plans? Uh, that That's such a, a good point and an interesting point because I think we've been seeing before Covid you know more of a an appetite across the UK for participatory democracy and we were seeing that on an issue basis and also on a community place basis which mm. was important. I think it's such a still fairly radical a concept for many um, perhaps traditional communities or, or older communities and I wonder though whether with COVID you know we've seen accelerated so many issues and in, in, in a sense you know 10 years the world has changed 10 years worth in three months and one of the interesting things to, to monitor is how close people feel to their democratic institutions. So, you know, the public were feeling extremely disenfranchised from traditional political structures and whether they will feel more so post-COVID or not is, is something that um, remains to play out. But I think what we have here is a massive opportunity, as you say, to, to re sort of galvanize people's, um, I think their energy, their belief in their own power to change, I think, it's not necessarily about um, changing those structures, but integrating them better and, and making people feel heard. So um, that is a very good point, Emily, and, and one that I will take back to the team to discuss further, because I think it is really important. And part of our work before COVID was around tackling abuse and intimidation and in public life and why that was a barrier to participation of mm. particularly women, but people of all communities, and particularly now when we're looking at structural inequality and racism I think we again have an opportunity now to totally reset that and these things all connect don't they and I think one of the things that I would love to see as the legacy of COVID is greater faith in institutions and in political structures but also seeing structures open up break them open to the daylight to the reality that they do not look like the communities they purport to represent wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> 
It will be something, but I worry that that might not happen because it sounds as if a lot of that energy and galvanizing activity is happening at that local community level. Individuals feel empowered. They feel connected with their communities. They're taking action. They're doing things that they might never have thought of doing, but they're losing faith in the institutions and certainly the reports that are coming out at the moment. There's a definite sense of distrust in the way that that, the government and institutions related to government have necessarily been handling the pandemic and particularly the lockdown eases. Um, So I I worry that we might have that amazing sort of power base, if you like, at community level, but we might not be able to translate that to changing those institutions, which we know are so desperately in need of change. Yeah, that that's obviously the, the flip side of my utopian vision <laughs> is that the two diverge even more so the question is what what structures can you build that that narrow that gap and and always it's about um lack of voice lack of purchase because a, an organization or a a group of people just don't have that platform and the first thing we did um, after we had sort of got used to the, the new normal was, was to establish a platform called the Connection Coalition, which I would love your listeners to take a look at, connectioncoalition.org.uk. Um, and what that was, was our response to the fact that the social and emotional well-being of the country was not being addressed in the initial phase of the acute you know, crisis, obviously, because rightly the government had to focus on people's health, well-being, safety, security. But we knew that after we exited lockdown and we got into the long tail of of the the pandemic, there would be a mountain of issues that were all intersecting around loneliness, grief, bereavement, exclusion, social isolation, fear, um, all of these variables that we're going to, and which we will see and are seeing, which would combine to create a, potentially a crisis of connection. So what, what we did with the Connection Coalition was immediately build a, a platform for organisations all over the country, some of which, you know, is are run by one person in their, in their spare room, um, you know, reaching out to vulnerable people in their community. And then we go right up to big organisations like Mind and Barnardo's and everything in between but to give them a collective voice to really say, look, you know, we can't forget that in the end, human connection and human relationships and the power of connection is part of the connective tissue of what, what, what makes us stronger. And if we can share learning, build capacity and amplify our voice, I think that's how we can bring communities closer to, you know, the power the decision-making, you know, powerful structures of, of Whitehall. I mean, I think there's a there's an important thing as, as well, isn't there, about language? I, I've heard quite a few commentators recently talk about the the need to be be referring to it as physical distancing rather than social distancing, because we are perhaps being given a um, a message that we need to distance ourselves from other people in our communities and in our neighbourhoods. And actually that's that's the very reverse of the unity that we actually created in response to the pandemic. So um, I wonder whether there's, um, and I think we often forget the importance of the kind of overarching narrative when it comes to, to this and, and how that kind of permeates through media and through social media in particular. You know, if you're being bombarded by this kind of narrative of stay apart, stay away, all the time it can reinforce those feelings of of isolation and and loneliness 
Um, but I think there's a there's a really important point here about kind of what I guess what's the difference that you have seen between sort of pre pre pandemic and and now because I I do it it did feel like there was some kind of switch that turned on during the pandemic. I mean I certainly know that I. I am more more aware of the people in my community. I, I, I know more of my neighbours than I knew living here before. You know, we have our, our support group. We're looking after each other. Um, this switch has been turned on. How do we keep it turned on? How do we stop it from turning off again and going back to the kind of perhaps polarised... I mean, I know you said that you think there is still polarisation, but I think you know, perhaps at the extreme ends of the scale there is, but it does feel like the kind of centre has come together in a way that we hadn't before, perhaps. Hmm. Well, I think I think you're completely right that things have changed. And I suppose we we have to be hopeful that those that this moment has been so completely life changing for everybody and for the world that there is no going back kind of thing. And um you know, one of the most powerful narratives around COVID is how this is going to make us all reassess how we live, how we consume, how we interact. Um, what what do we value? I think um, to your point about physical distancing. I mean, one of the things that we've we we know has changed is that previously people who were feeling very isolated and disconnected, who were in perhaps the most obvious at risk groups have reported feeling more connected. So older people in particular, and those who um, have had pre-existing conditions that have meant that they had felt a sense of missing out before, they've now spent three months in lockdown with the rest of the country and, and are finding that they're feeling more connected. So that's an interesting dynamic. But the flip side of that is that um, particularly younger people, 18 to 24 year olds have reported exponential rises in feeling isolated and having concerns for their mental well-being than had been before because all of the normal outlets for connection have have vanished um, but we we know as well from from the data that there has also been an incredible rise in people who think that we now look out for each other and look after each other more so back in February you were looking at sort of 25 percent of the population and now you're looking at over 60 percent. So that's huge. I mean, that that is such a significant shift. It's it's you know it is an absolute sort of change in the national mindset. Um, and then people who thought that we were all quite insular, we'd look out for ourselves, and you know it was each one each to their own type of type of thing. You see a complete reversal of that figure. So around sixty percent before coronavirus, and now one in four people, only one in four people say that that they think people are, are quite insular. So I think that that, as you say, though, the question is, how do we ensure that that continues? Um, and I think that's where we have a collective responsibility to just keep that narrative of connection really high up the national agenda. And, and we all have a, a duty to do that. I think we all have to do a bit of an audit of our, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our communities and keep carrying those those acts forward i mean they say there's no such thing as a selfless good deed and i think that's right but that's that's not to say a selfless good deed is a bad thing because the selfish bit is that you are investing in your well-being by reaching out to others and investing in your community that's true here that's true of i believe any community in the world 
Um, so in that sense as well, I think these are lessons that will be playing out right across the globe. The, the way you describe that, Catherine, it feels like a quite a hopeful narrative, which is something we need as we come through um, the pandemic <laughs> and we look at the future. But it does also feel to me as if that's slightly out of step with some of the messaging and some of the um, activities that the that, that government, both national and local, are taking. And you particularly talk about our need to sort of express ourselves when you're talking about citizens' assemblies and the right to gather and things. And yet when people do gather, at the moment, they're breaking the law. And there's a suggestion after, you know, recent events, the protests might be banned altogether. So it feels as if while we as citizens are more engaged and we might be buying into the agenda that, that the SDGs present as a framework for change, actually, our government and our decision makers are out of step with us and are perhaps making it more difficult for citizens to do those things. And, and Emily, we've, we've seen really over the last five years, there hasn't been a terrific track record of delivery have they the work that you've done at UKSSD with measuring up project I mean we haven't I don't feel possibly that we've got a government that's completely bought into the agenda and perhaps the things that Catherine's been saying it's even more um, acute now when we can see it in comparison to the work that communities are doing and organizations the not-for-profit sector are doing it stands in sharp contrast as to what's happening at government level but I think this is where why it's so exciting to talk to Catherine and why it's so exciting to think about communities and think about this at, at a hyper local level, because actually, while we don't have a or we ha certainly haven't had a government who are taking their responsibility for the sustainable development goals as seriously as we would like. And I think in many areas, they are still thought of as something that relates to other countries and applies to other countries. They're a, a developing country agenda, which they're not. Well, we don't have that. What we do have is local governments who are engaging. We do have communities who are engaging. You know, we've got numerous partners within UKSSD's network who are community organisers who have set up their own stakeholder-led initiatives in their localities to help progress the SDGs at a local level. So I do think there's an exciting opportunity to kind of bring the SDG agenda to a local level in response to the pandemic, exactly to the point that, that Catherine talks to you know, around the fact they touch on so many of the both the present issues we're experiencing, but also the concerns people have about the future. Um, I do think I, we um, rudely interrupted your the goals that you thought were of importance. So I'm not sure what your fourth goal was, but I did think that, you know, some of the things you were talking about, I, I think the beauty of the SDGs is the fact that they are connected. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the other goals that are relevant to each of those issues. So, I mean, there is something about telling a story here that as you were, as you were talking, I was hearing the story of the SDGs in local communities, which I think is really exciting. Ooh. Well, my my fourth goal was partnerships for the goals. Okay, <laughs> that's a good one. I like that one <laughs> because that that's the the cross cutting theme, right? Which is that you can't see each goal in isolation, and and everything is interconnected. Um, I think yes, um, Amanda, I really admire your pointiness at challenging government, but we all know that government is like a stately galleon that goes at a rate of you know a snail's pace and um, I kind of think of this in almost the analogy to, to technological change which is that tech has advanced so fast that legislation can barely keep up and I think with the SDGs as well um, 
government cannot keep up because there are so many interest groups lobbying government at any one time. There are so many priorities competing for, you know, top top priority. Um, therefore, perhaps the the solution for integrating the SDGs into to all we do domestically is to bubble things up from a grassroots and that is where you know to spread the patchwork to 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 spread the ink spot um and i think part part of the thing with the sdgs as a challenge is is it um is the concept of the sdgs quite alienating to your average community group do they think it's a big fancy un acronym thing that they don't understand <laughs> how do you push back against that i'm i'm playing devil's advocate here that's not what i think but you know, how can you can communicate the goals in a in a way that resonates with a parish council in Blackpool, for example? Um, and I think that you can do that. And the way to do that, perhaps, would be to flip things over and ask them. And that's where potentially the Connection Coalition could could come in as a useful partner on the SDGs, which is, you know, can we use some of those groups to to test ideas on, but also to hear from them about what do the SDGs mean to them? What does what does the SDG what does an SDG mean to a community in in rural Scotland or wherever it might be? So I suppose my challenge to you is how do you how do you make them local as well and make them accessible to communities that that by the way as well you know as you know are, are very diverse and, and different one to the next. So it's quite tricky. I think that is. Well, for me personally, and Amanda, you might have a, a different opinion, but that for me is why the SDGs are, are great and beautiful is because actually you can, you don't need to present them as a UN agenda. You can say, actually, what is important to you in your locality? You know, what matters to you in your road, in your neighbourhood, in your in your village, in your town? Where are the priorities for you? And then bring that back to the SDG agenda and say, actually, you know what, this is, you know, it might be good health and well-being or it might be climate change. You know, what is important to you? And then how can we use this framework to create a plan that helps you as a community address those challenges? That's what I think we're seeing in some places in the UK where we do have uh, we do actually have councils who are saying, you know, we've got a, a climate change agenda or we've got a health and well-being agenda. And actually the that is our entry point to a conversation about broader sustainable development in our communities and the number of interlinked issues to that agenda. So I think um, I could think they can be localised. I'm not quite sure that there are, you know, we don't necessarily have the tools or the resources to provide to communities right now for them to do that. And in a way we need that because there is amazing resource in communities, but there's also a need to kind of provide the first steps in that process and at the moment we don't have them that's a role for central government I think actually is to provide those sort of first steps but if they're not doing that then you know the rest of us can try. I think what's really interesting about this conversation is that that Catherine shaped a narrative which is actually that the responsibility and the energy and the drive for change is sitting in our communities it's always sat in our communities and it's always sat in the not-for-profit sector but ever more now it's sitting in those communities and the SDGs Mm. are part of that toolkit and even if you don't name them as such you may find that communities are doing those things under those headings and I think that while they provide a wonderful framework and we particularly like them and they look great actually it doesn't matter as long as people are connecting with the themes that sit under those 17 goals so they're almost if you like delivering the SDG agenda without even realizing it and I and I think that's something that we need to, to, to keep pushing because they're such a useful toolkit but the other thing is I can see us creating a society where actually power is truly devolved 
to communities and to community connectors because if we can't rely on central government and if central government is too distracted doing something else and we haven't even mentioned the Brexit word um, and you know <laughs> the economy then actually it's up to us and that changed community connection to, to, to carry forward the changes that we want to see in our communities and if we're changing the way we shop and we live and we work then we will be much more community rooted I mean I know we're being encouraged to go shopping but I don't actually know many people who want to stand in a queue for 25 minutes to not be allowed to try on an item of clothing um you know most people will say actually we can do a lot of this stuff remotely now and we'd rather be where our friends and our family and our community are rather than spending a lot of time commuting into a city or traveling into a city center to shop so I think the whole power base and dynamic is in danger of shifting and if I were sitting in central government I would be quite scared by that actually because that's about empowering communities at grassroots level and the SDGs are a way of actually giving a voice to that which is incredibly powerful so I can see a world where the two of you have kind of taken over <laughs> you know single you know double-handed power grab but but why not because actually that's about real change isn't it real change in people's real lives and that's what we're talking about yeah absolutely yeah I do think we have to, to just be careful about, um, I mean, and, and Catherine, you'll know this, but we, I think it's very easy for us to talk about this and, and see people in our communities as one homogenous group. And actually, you know, we do, you made an important point about this needing to be relevant to people and where they live and what their issues are. But I think we also have to recognise that, uh, you know, as some of the evidence showed, whilst, whilst we have some people who are feeling more connected and uh, more, more part of their communities than they have before, we have others who are more isolated and, and, and still incredibly vulnerable. And, and I certainly think as we enter recession, that vulnerability is, is not going to go away. So there is an important point here in all of this, which is about actually the SDGs being a tool not just to think positively about the future and identify what is important to us and what what we need to do to achieve what is important to us but also about addressing some of those systemic and, and structural issues that are the cause of disadvantage and vulnerability in our society um, and I don't I uh, Catherine I'm, I'm guessing you know you must have views on on how we might do that moving forwards or, or or even whether the SDGs can help us to do that and, and how you see that manifesting uh, maybe yeah. through your work as well <laughs> yeah that I mean that's um as you say the the social recession if I can call it that will be much deeper and, and longer lasting than any economic recession uh you know I don't want to get political about it but Obviously, what we're seeing now is, 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 is you know, the worst sort of economic crisis we've faced in many, many years. And that will exacerbate um, issues that had already been sort of brewing in our communities and, and those lines of division, those fractures in our communities, which can be along racial lines or socioeconomic lines or demographic lines will be, you know, the danger is that they will be cleaved even further apart is that the right word no I you know what I yeah, mean cleaved is good <laughs> um, and so when we talk about the economic recession it, in a way it's whitewashing over the really big issue which is that that deep deep social recession that we're going to be facing again you know I just and this is where the partnership element of the goals comes in it, it's about taking a holistic approach to that so whether it's around health and social care or public health or even transport or housing 
these things all interconnect. I think part of the problem with those old power structures is that we look in silo at all of these issues. And because looking at the variables and all those intersections is just so difficult. But the minute we say something's difficult, we're, we're kind of implying we can't tackle it. So let's stop saying that's difficult. Let's say that's the reality. It's messy. Intersectionality is not just about gender or race. It's about the way we live. And the more we can kind of tease out those instances where, where we can show that there are 20 different aspects or 20,000 different aspects to poverty, um, you know, we can, people can understand that better. So again, I think that the language of government, the way that we've siloed issues, the way that, you know, holistic approach in legislation is just really difficult. You know, any cross department approach is always difficult, um, but we need more of that because that's the only way we'll address things in the round. That's a fantastic call to action to, to end with, really. We must end, sadly. And I think that, that, you know, if ever there were a challenge that we should be given that is just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, you know. And the work that you've been leading at the Jacobs Foundation has proved that the, the difficult is the stuff that use your, your bread and butter and that you rise to that challenge every day with the foundation and you've done such amazing work. Thank you so much for being with us and for discussing that and for also giving us some hope that the, the future is not perhaps as bleak as we sometimes think it is and that our communities are, are, are gathering and powerful and they're part of that agent for change. Catherine, thank you. Emily, thank you for another fascinating UKSSD SDG conversation. And my thanks too to our producer, Jim Haywood, who makes these podcasts happen. Uh, you've been listening to Planet Pod. If you want to hear other episodes of the podcast, this and others in the series, um, visit theplanetpod.com um, or follow us on social media or visit UKSSD's website. And don't forget, do get involved with Joe Cox Foundation and the community connection. Um, thank you both for being with us. Thanks so much. The UK SSD podcast, bringing the sustainable development goals to life. Music